In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts, who are in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I am Diana Wood from Bernstein's Boston office, and this episode features our U.S. Internet analyst, Mark Schmulek. The podcast takes a look at the changing consumer behavior in the face of technological innovations. We peel back the onion on where artificial intelligence sits in the land of innovation. So welcome. Hi, Mark. Hi, Diana. So we can just jump right in. You wrote about what has been dubbed the two wows of innovation. So for our listeners here, let's explain these two wows. Yeah, of course. When I think about covering internet stocks and the internet more broadly, with so much emphasis being placed on the terminal value or the terminal growth, understanding disruption is pretty much crux for understanding the sector. And so then distilling that disruption into what's real and will change, you know, fundamental things like an iPhone versus what's pretty hype. And, you know, we have a moment and we enjoy it and then it goes away becomes increasingly important. And and so, you know, when I look at the space, I've kind of dubbed these two wows. And the first wow was, you know, what I dubbed the Pepsi challenge wow. And, you know, if you recall in the 90s or when I was growing up, certainly Pepsi would go on the road and they would mask a little cup of Pepsi and, and one of Coca-Cola. Uh, and you'd taste it blindly and determine what you like best. Unsurprisingly, folks really liked Pepsi a lot for that initial sip, uh, which is partially why they did the test to try to gain some market share. But what happens is you then go to the store, uh, you buy your Pepsi, the entire bottle uh, or can, and halfway through, you realize it's just a little bit too sweet relative to your taste buds. And so it really had this wow moment of, I didn't realize I actually liked Pepsi, but it turns out taking one sip isn't actually the way you prefer to consume, you know, carbonated beverages. And so it quickly goes away and you shift back to Coke and nothing's really changed. And, you know, the market share, quite interestingly, post-Pepsi Challenge went back right to where it was previously. And I've had many of these myself covering internet as well. I've tried, you know, the Quest headset from Meta and I went on a virtual roller coaster. And I will tell you, I had a real wow moment. I've never experienced that kind of a sensation through an immersive technology. But now, my uh, Quest device is collecting dust on my uh, on my shelf in the office because I never really found the utility of why do I need to go back and, and do this again. On the other hand, there's a whole different type of wow that's perhaps a little bit more subtle in its nature. But what it really does is it provides repeatable utility. And that's the thing that I would look for when I look at disruption in internet is what's that repeatable you know utility that this is going to provide that makes everything that came before it feel really like archaic uh, to the point where our kids are asking how did you live you know before xyz uber would be a, a phenomenal example of the second wow where you know the first time i ordered a car it came by on my phone picked me up dropped me off at the airport was able to do it again wherever i landed in the world you know the wow was certainly there but it was a repeatable wow. And, and now I can't imagine going back to a day where, you know, we don't have Uber anymore. And so I think thinking about kind of real disruption from you know, the lens of one of these wows really helps distill what do we think is real, repeatable, and is fundamentally going to change the way we do things. And what's really, wow, this is really cool, innovative, and interesting, but doesn't really give me any reason to change the way I live my life. So how do you think about artificial intelligence and chat GPT and everything that's going on or has, you know, it's existed for a long time, but most recently, how do you think about that in the context of these two wows? 
This is, I guess, the question du jour, certainly, because at the moment, we're definitely in peak hype when it comes to AI and generative AI specifically. And I think ChatGPT was one of those ones where the first time I used it, I certainly had a wow. But I don't really know which wow it is yet. And, and maybe that's a, a bit unfair to kind of invite me on the, the podcast and not actually have an answer. Because I certainly did have the wow. Well, wow, this is this is really incredible that it can generate this poem. I don't know why the first thing I tried to type in was write me a poem, but... <laughs> you know, <laughs> write me a poem. You know, however, certainly trying it for things like actually creating uh, creative or doing research on my behalf or coding. So I think there is real utility. What I will say, though, is that utility probably exists in some narrower pockets than, you know, the initial wow might have suggested. So maybe the overall feeling was, wow, this is the next iPhone, you know, which obviously is very broad, very big, and certainly a phrase we've heard several folks use that this is like the iPhone moment of AI. Uh, and I felt that wow. And then uh, since then, I think the wow that I'm feeling is this really does help make me more productive, you know, in very specific aspects. But I don't think it's as broad based as perhaps some of the initial hype suggests. But maybe humans, the OG intelligence, the original ones that are developing this, what sets us aside from other species is our ability to have empathy and create art and be creative. And the first thing we're doing is replacing the arts. So that's kind of sad, isn't it? Do you think scripted TV is going to go away? Movies? Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it? That with this version of AI, generative AI, it seems to be that, you know, one of the verticals or industries that's most at risk for disruption is the creative arts, which previous iterations of technological disruption mostly enabled, didn't really disrupt that this always felt like something that was protected that computers can't do. Nielsen has this phenomenal stat that takes the average household something in the neighborhood of seven to 10 minutes to find something to watch on Netflix. And then half of those households just abandon the search entirely. In the meantime, what we've seen is with the rise of mobile and what started off as YouTube and now very much TikTok and short form video, you know, we've effectively removed the barriers of creation. So now everybody can go have a camera in their hands, sophisticated editing software, and they're creating these 30-second videos that are incredibly either inspiring or invoking and, and certainly addictive, uh, to say the least. And so now we've taken what we would sit back and say, let's watch a two-hour movie or let's watch eight one-hour episodes of you know a scripted show we're really excited about. And instead, we're just scrolling mindlessly through our phone as we're being served kind of dopamine hit after dopamine hit of, of content. And so you combine that with what we're now seeing in, in kind of with the writer strike that you alluded to, you know, where they're worried about AI displacing them or supplementing them. You know, and the reality becomes is that AI is progressing, not just in the text form, but also in image and video form. We've removed the barriers of creation. And so we may just be moving towards this infinite stream of content where quality becomes far less important, originality becomes far less important than quote unquote going viral or resonating uh, with its intended audience. So uh, I know a bit provocative, certainly, but there's a very real risk. We may be at this inflection point with cinema. You're talking a lot about how the barriers for consumers and how we consume media have come down. It's open to everyone. How do you think about this as it applies to the extent of your coverage? You talk about the triangle of internet and the stakeholders and how this fits into an overall ecosystem. So let's peel that back a little bit. 
Yeah, of course. And the triangle you're referring to is, you know, we always think about disruption internet, and we certainly started the conversation talking about users and user behavior. And that feels very familiar as consumers. This is consumer internet. You know, it's, it's all products or applications and services that we all know, that we all love and that we all use. But there's more stakeholders involved. It's not a typical classical model where you have a buyer and a seller and it's a two-sided, you know, transaction and that's the end of it, like going into a store to buy something. Um, you know, you do have the creators as we, you know, just discussed a little bit, all these people out there creating content and, you know, they've created an entirely new cohort of how we think about business models for who is and isn't an actor, uh, for who is and isn't a writer, for who is and isn't a creator, and we've dubbed them influencers and, as, as such. But this has been going on for a very long time where, you know, the very start of social media, you know, you were encouraged not just to lurk, as I know that, uh, you know, many folks still very much do and my own Twitter experience or X experience, let's call it these days, you know, is very much a lurking experience where I'm pretty much just consuming. But you've always been encouraged to post, whether it was a photo from your vacation or a tweet of something you're thinking about or something that you're doing. So this idea of, of kind of who is the creator of the content uh, that we consume or the information that we're consuming has certainly broadened and, and the barriers have been removed. And then the third part of the triangle is, well, at the end of the day, these are businesses we're talking about. And I think one of the biggest distinctions worth making in internet is, well, what's really cool and neat as a, you know, as an application per se, but what actually is a real business model that you can make money on? You know, we saw Clubhouse earlier, uh, you know, a couple years ago of these audio rooms didn't really crack the business model. Be Real, another social media competitor that really reached peak hype last year. Really fun, really great to take a photo, you know, once a day, not really a business model that sits underneath it. And so, you know, what is the underlying model that effectively creates, uh, you know, an economy? How do they get paid? Is it advertising, which is a very prominent one, certainly in my space? Is it e-commerce? Is there a transaction at the end of it? But understanding, you know, what the business model is that, you know, that, that kind of underpins the, this relationship becomes increasingly critical to, you know, the internet and my coverage. And look, I, I do cover lots of social media names, but they're not really social media. They're just a place where media is created. We consume it. And it's funded by a combination of advertising, uh, which is something we're very familiar with from the TV days and the radio days uh, and the newspaper days, but also through subscription services, which we're also very intimately familiar with, you know, through our old kind of cable box subscriptions. What we've really just seen is, you know, when I view consumer internet, is it's not really an industry. It's it's really just a channel. And the industry that sits underneath it, you know, is really a combination of looking at who these kind of three key stakeholders are. Uh, and you'll find a lot of like tried and true media models, retail models, IT models that kind of underpin most of what I define as internet. Yeah, it's changing. It's changing a lot. I mean, and we just saw the launch, Meta's launches of threads. I mean, to have sort of this broadcast medium, obviously rivaling Twitter or X now. I mean, it sounds like in some ways is social media as we know dead. Is it a place to post and consume or is it more where folks are looking to have it be a medium of consuming all news and industry events? What did you think about that launch? Yeah, I hate the word social media. I just think it describes something that doesn't exist or isn't real. It's something that I think existed. I think it did exist when the internet was emerging and we were trying to figure out what first, you know, MySpace was, if you remember that, you know, and then the rise of Facebook. And we're all trying to figure out, you know, how do we just share more of ourselves in a public sphere? I think as the internet's matured, 
the way we want to consume media starts changing quite a bit. And, and Mark Zuckerberg actually alluded to this a couple earnings calls ago. Uh, and effectively, to me, what it signifies is there's back to the utility thing we talked about with one of the wows. You know, what's the utility of the Internet, if, assuming it's a channel? And really, it's like, so where do I go to do things? So where do I go to connect with my friends, my family, and people I care about? And how do I want to go do that? Where do I go to be entertained? And entertainment is such a, a broad term. I could go play games. I could go watch a TikTok. I can go watch a movie. You know, where do I go to effectively buy things uh, as commerce is, is critical? And then lastly, where do I go to be productive, you know, with, which is just kind of emailing or, or doing research and doing work? I think once you figure out the where for those four things, you'll realize that the how you want to do that on the internet actually looks really similar to, to previous iterations of, you know, our relationship with technology. And here's what I mean by that. Back to the comments that Mark Zuckerberg made. He says, when Facebook started, everybody was sharing everything in this public sphere. But increasingly, you know, you kind of just wanted to go consume things in the public sphere. And a lot of the most meaningful things that underpinned social of social media moved to more of these private channels like iMessages, WhatsApp, Telegram, conversations, the old water cooler thing. And and so what's left when we look at, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, is that increasingly the content that we're there is, is effectively just a broadcast media. We're consuming it the same way we consume radio and the same way we consume television. We're going there to be entertained, maybe to learn something. But increasingly, you know, uh, Mark's talked a lot about how Meta's pushing more content from outside of your network towards you. Uh, I think at the last stat I saw was something like 40% of the content on your Instagram feed, you know, is now coming from their recommendation algorithm. You know, to me, this is the evolution of this old social media where everything was just done together in this public sphere because we didn't know any better to our preferences once again reemerge where the things we really care about die. You and I, we're going to have our side conversation. We're not going to share it here, you know, on the podcast. Well, we'll message each other and we'll talk about the things that are important to kind of both of us. But some of the things we might be sharing is, you know, a great reel that I saw on Instagram or a great tweet that I saw on, on, on X. And so I think as we think about kind of this old world of social media, it, it's really gone. And what's been replaced by is these broadcast media channels. And then, you know, these side conversation interaction channels, which brings me to kind of the release of threads. There's two things about threads that I think are, are really remarkable to me. One is obviously the speed of which, you know, they got folks to, to kind of download it you know, the fastest application ever to like 10 million downloads and then, you know, above and beyond from there. You know, the most remarkable thing is if you take a look at what the Threads platform is designed for, the initial features at launch was very much designed to be a broadcast channel. This is where you go as a creator to post things. And, you know, one of the, I guess, tricks that Meta did is that they invited a lot of their influencers and celebrities onto the platform ahead of time to create the content that then we as the kind of average consumer join and consume said content. So how are they going to continue to monetize? Digital advertising offers something unique that was really difficult to do in the old world, which was, I know so much about you as, as one of these platforms that I can tailor the advertisement to something that we think you might really be interested in, you know, versus just simply guessing or back to television where you have a mass audience consuming a single piece of content, you know, you're, you're trying to solve for as many people as possible, which is why you get things like a Coca-Cola commercial. But on the internet or online, what you could do is I could actually be far more tailored saying, well, actually, Mark's been watching a lot of golf videos. And so he's also been searching for a lot of things about, you know, how to hit an iron or how to, you know, what balls are best. 
that kind of data really lends itself very well to allowing some of these golf equipment uh, manufacturers to target me uh, with an ad that's effective. And then the second thing that the internet does is it closes the loop. Not only can they show me the ad, uh, I can click on the ad, go to that website, and then purchase the product. And so all of a sudden, that advertising dollar becomes incredibly valuable because you can measure the ROI against it. You know, the the equivalency in the old world was like direct mail, you know, where you'd get a bunch of coupons in the mail for, I don't know, a home painting service or something <laughs> like that, um, you know, and you try to track it that way. But otherwise, the old world of media really lend itself more to to kind of broadcast media where you're trying to just give a message that appeals to as many people as possible and hope that something resonates. So that's kind of why I would say the internet has been so dominated by advertising to date, you know, is effectively the primary monetization model behind meta and all of, you know, quote unquote, social media behind Google and search. If I'm searching for something, right, you're, you're typically looking to transact at the end of it. But subscriptions has kind of been one of these things that's that's really been quiet and on the uptake. Sure, you know, we have subscription services like a Netflix or a Spotify, but at least for like the larger kind of classic internet names, you know, it's kind of been an afterthought. Now, YouTube's actually done a pretty decent job of building up a subscription business if you want to avoid those advertisements we just talked about. So, you know, getting an ad-free version. But the new kind of subscription that we're seeing emerge is this idea of a subscription product for the creator. Back to who these stakeholders are in internet you know, it's not just who's the consumer and the lurker, but who's creating the content. And oftentimes, they're not just creating it out of the goodness of their own heart or because they're bored. You know, they're trying to build a business on the back end of it. And so if these platforms start creating subscription products to help you, you know, authenticate yourself, have customer support if you have any issues with your distribution of your posts or your products or your measurement, or even actually pay for distribution so more people get to see your content that you think might be interested in it. You could see how the subscription product actually becomes incredibly compelling as a complement to the ad business in the internet space. I think at the moment, we're still very much trying to figure out exactly what that subscription product looks like. But we've certainly seen Twitter X be quite aggressive, you know, trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. Um, you know, Meta's now started to roll out their verified you know, subscription product for creators. Uh, I fully expect that as, you know, the next five to 10 years of internet evolves, you know, you're going to see a very finely tuned subscription product that's really going to help these creators stand up and, and grow and monetize their businesses to the best of their possibility. If you're the platform that effectively gets to show and distribute that content, yes, you can make money through advertising, but you could also make money, you know, through subscriptions, which the legacy media businesses have long proven to be a complementary monetization model. I'll kind of share a fun anecdote is, you know, there's this wave of uh, in the direct to consumer space and internet a few years ago, and I'm sure you've probably tried it out. And if not, most folks <laughs> listening probably tried something about these meal kit subscriptions. Oh, my gosh. Whether it was Blue Apron or, or whatever have you. And, and there was this moment in time, you know, when you'd come out of the subway in like Union Square, New York, and you'd have 30 people standing there trying to give you like a coupon to sign up to their meal subscription service. And it was great from a novelty perspective, right? Wow, I don't have to go out to a grocery store and buy $100 worth of groceries to prepare one meal and then throw a bunch of stuff out because turns out I don't eat garlic that regularly or whatever it might be. You know, and here you are with just like a perfectly proportioned amount of each ingredient with a recipe to go prepare. Once the novelty runs out, back to the Pepsi challenge novelty, you realize the subscription of that kind of utility just isn't worth it. And so, you know, really, when we talk about subscriptions online, 
figuring out the right utility and perhaps more importantly in my space, given that they're a little bit more mature is how much pricing power do you have for that utility? You know, can Amazon keep hiking prime pricing? At some point, you know, folks are going to look at what they're getting for their money and say, do I really need it in one day? Can I maybe wait and, and not pay, you know, whatever the membership fee is going to be in a few years? Do I really need to pay more for Netflix or for Spotify? Or am I really just watching TikTok all the time? You know, so these kinds of questions around utility happen in both two ways. One is, do you even adopt the subscription product to begin with? And then two, is the price delivering on that utility? Yeah, I fell victim to some of those meal kits. And I just, it took more time, I think, than I thought to make the meal. So I just, I was, it was short lived for me. I have trouble boiling water. <laughs> okay, so in terms of wows, I have to ask you, when your last trips in the fall, we were sitting outside, we were meeting with an investor. It was a beautiful fall day in Brookline. I could smell the autumnal leaves. We were eating, I think, French fries outside at lunch. And you guys were having a very philosophical discussion about the metaverse. And I think as you were doing it, I was become more and more depressed because I was living in the real world, talking about this metaverse where I would not be experiencing the real world. How do you think about the metaverse in terms of these two wows? Well, I guess the first part of the metaverse was trying on that Quest headset, which was really incredible from the immersive experience. And I have no doubt, you know, the new Apple device is probably going to elicit some very similar wows of what you can see with the content and, you know, kind of the, you're literally at a movie theater with like a 360 degree screen. Pretty wow. Uh, especially from a spatial perspective, like taking that roller coaster, playing a video game certainly feels pretty wow. But not something everyone's going to do, you know, every day. When I think about the metaverse, you know, and and back to like me not liking terminology, and maybe this is just something I've got to get over in the internet, but I also don't like the metaverse label. Mostly because I think when we think about the metaverse, and I think this is probably a mistake from the branding of the entire exercise, was that, you know, it elicits visions of what you just said. We're outside having a really nice coffee, and I remember that one well. And the second you hear the term metaverse, you, you kind of feel a bit uneasy because, what, we're all going to go leave these, you know, beautiful kind of sidewalk cafes to disappear into our basements with headsets on. Um, you know, those are the kinds of images people associate with the metaverse. And I think that's, you know, unfair or disingenuous to uh, what I actually think the opportunity is. And, and for me, when I think about the metaverse, it's really just an evolution of the next computing platform. And I think that's coming. And I don't know when it is. And I don't know what exactly it's going to look like when it gets here. Um, but, you know, and I wish folks on, on listening to the podcast could see, but I'm holding up the iPhone in my hand and I'm sitting here and I can't imagine that this is the end of our relationship with technology is this device. I took the subway just a few days ago and everybody's just sitting there looking down, you know, on their devices, like lost in their own world. I just can't believe that that's where our relationship with technology ends. You know, if anybody was on this Taylor Swift tour, the amount of people that watched the entire Taylor Swift concert after spending, you know, life savings to, to procure a ticket for it, and then to end up just watching the event through the camera on this iPhone, to me, that just feels incomplete. I just don't think that this is where it's going to end. I just don't think we're going to be going to concerts and trying to consume it through a little camera on our device just so we can record it. So what do I think happens? Well, I think technology and reality continue to overlap. I think about something as simple as, you know, my car's now got a heads up display. And so when I'm putting in like Google Maps, you know, and I'm looking at the destination where I go to, why do I need to look down onto the dashboard screen? Why can't I have a blue line on the road ahead of me telling me exactly where to turn, where to drive, how fast I'm going? 
I imagine the same thing we'll see with just regular glasses or sunglasses. Like you'll be able to get more information that's relevant to you to make sure that, you know, whatever you're doing in reality is actually enhanced when you want it to be enhanced. And in that future, there are things where immersion is actually something where, you know, that actually enhances and creates new utility, most of which we can't really think about today. And this kind of goes back to this magic unlock moment for when utility really kind of shows up. So I'm, I'm going to go pick on the iPhone for a second here, because the number one criticism I've heard with uh, virtual reality or these Quest devices or this metaverse is that there's no real killer use case. And I say, well, the very first iPhone didn't have a killer use case either. You know, in fact, when Steve Jobs was presenting and introducing the iPhone for the first time, he highlighted that it does three things and only three things. It's a phone. I guess that's important. It's a web browser. Great. Not a bad thing. Uh, and it plays music. It's an iPod. That's it. That's what the original iPhone was all about. So you can imagine that, you know, when, when competitors at that time, you know, you can look over at Microsoft, Steve Ballmer was very critical of this device that was as expensive as it was, and it didn't have a keyboard, you know, because if you're going to go browse the internet, keyboard feels pretty useful, or if you're writing emails, you know, it, it feels pretty useful. But then a funny thing happened after that first version of the iPhone is that, you know, Steve Jobs kind of relented and said, okay, let's do the App Store in the second version. He didn't want the App Store originally because, you know, they wanted to control the ecosystem. But I would argue if they didn't actually launch the App Store to third-party developers, you wouldn't have somebody out there creating the utilities that now become part of that second well, like an Uber, right? Uber may well not exist if Apple was controlling and trying to do everything themselves. And so opening it up to the developer ecosystem effectively acknowledges that we don't know what we don't know for what's going to change our relationship with technology. But if we open it up to a lot of smart people creating a lot of interesting things, we're going to figure it out. And so I think the same holds true you know, when we apply it to the metaverse. And again, it's not just about just the immersive virtual reality type product, but it's the mixed reality. And it's also just the augmented reality on a very lightweight glasses devices. I believe if we open it up to enough smart, intelligent and interesting developers, they'll find utility for what I believe is a new form factor change that we're just destined to get there eventually. Back to my issues, you know, with the iPhone, it's done a lot of great things. But again, I, I just don't think that this is where it ends. But I don't know if you've seen the new BlackBerry movie. It definitely evoked some uh, some emotions as a Canadian from that period in time. <laughs> yes. But I guess I hadn't spent enough time on the history. But you see Mike, one of the co-founders, at the end, and you just feel for him. But every iteration, every new launch of the BlackBerry, he was a pioneer at the time, figuring out the broadband and the bandwidth to be able to have more than X number of phones on it and how it could expand and that positive clicking feeling of the keyboard. But he just couldn't get past it. And every model came out. It's just like a different size screen and the gosh darn keypad. That's an example of one where they just didn't let it come to them and adapt with the changing world around us. But Mark, I know we're kind of coming up on time here. And Mark, you're on vacation, which is so gracious for you spending time with us. So thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Diana. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Me too. This has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In the Know with Bernstein Research.
If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.